You're listening to Jesus is Everything, the teaching ministry of The Way, Eugene. Grab your Bibles and turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. That's where we're going to be primarily, but there's a couple of the spots I want to hit as we lead up to that, and you can take note of them. We all should know that as we read the Bible, Jesus is the central character of of the entire Bible. Everything is about Jesus. So as we read the Old Testament, like if you're reading the Read Scripture app, if you're using that as your Bible reading plan throughout the year, is one of the things I recommended, or if you're using some other Bible reading plan where you, you, you read Old Testament and Psalms in the morning and then New Testament in the evening, however that works out for you, even as we read the Old Testament, we are to have this understanding that everything is pointing toward and is about Jesus. And and even in some of those tough passages of the Old Testament, which we know there's a lot of stuff in the Bible that is brutal and really hard to read. Some of it from an academic standpoint to go another genealogy, another list of he begat this guy and this one and the son of this and all those kinds of things. Or if it's the stories that include some really graphic violence or other manners of sin that are just brutal. If you take it by itself and read it without any other context, it can just sort of be this curious, like, what on earth is going on? Like, what is God hoping to accomplish here with all of this destruction of nations and wars among wars and kings who just continually did evil in the sight of the Lord? And even the ones who did some good never took down the high places or the places where uh, pagan worship took place. And there was only like two good kings after King David, right? And the primary one being uh, Josiah, right? Where he actually did what the Lord asked him to do. But all of that, even the the intense detail of God uh, uh, listing out genealogies and the histories of Israel and all that stuff, the Old Testament is all pointing toward the Messiah, the one who would come to redeem God's people. All of the Old Testament the history books, the books of the law, the prophecies of the one who is going to come, the books of poetry and wisdom, all of it is pointing toward Jesus. So as you're reading the Old Testament, keep that in mind. Help that to to sort of govern you and, and be a rudder for you as you're making your way through sometimes scripture that is laborious. It, it takes work to get through, but keep that picture in mind that it's all pointing towards Jesus. Now, the New Testament, when we read the New Testament, it's a lot easier to understand how it's about Jesus. You have those gospel accounts right at the front end of the New Testament, and then everything else that comes out after the gospel accounts, after Jesus' death and his resurrection and then his ascension, all of those things, all the letters that are written, all of that stuff, it's about living in the light of Jesus' death and resurrection, how it looks for us to be his disciples on mission, according to the great commission that he gave us. He called us to say, hey, go and make disciples. Teach them everything that I've entrusted to you. And so from that perspective, it's much easier to to see Jesus at the center of it. But in everything that's being written, everything that we read in scripture, Jesus is at the center of it all. He's the central character. Now, Obviously, alongside of Jesus and a part of that narrative, a part of that story, there are other characters 
who come into play and important characters that God uses to further the mission of Jesus or prepare the mission of Jesus, as it were, in multiple ways. Now, of all the characters in the Bible, I think each one of us sort of has the opportunity to, to relate to others, you know, and, and sort of hear their stories and, and sort of pick up on their personalities and go, yeah, I really like this guy or this gal. And they really sort of minister to me in, in a special way. For me, one of the guys that just sort of sits atop of that list that I look at, the, the accounting of his life and what he participated in, and I go, that's my guy. And that is Jesus's cousin, John the Baptist. John, who was known as the baptizer, the Baptist, because of the ministry that he had there in Israel as Jesus was preparing to begin his ministry. John was this forerunner. And even when the religious leaders asked him who he was because he was building up this ministry of notoriety of some sort, he was saying, I'm not the one. They were like, well, then are you, you know, Elijah reborn? Are you the prophet? And he said, no. He, he said, as the prophet Isaiah said, I'm the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. Prepare the way was John's purpose for Jesus and his ministry. And now, you know, it, it's kind of an interesting thing for me. John was uh, Jesus's cousin. They, they were distant cousins, but they were related and those family relationships were tight. It's a funny thing when you think about uh, relationships and cousins. I was just in studying this, I was sort of doing some mental math and I'm not real good at that, but I think I have somewhere in the ballpark uh, of 23, 24, maybe even 25 first cousins meaning the children of my parents' siblings. So my dad was one of five children, and then all of their children would be my first cousins. And my mom was one of um, like 13, uh, either full or half brothers and sisters. And so all of their children as well. I've got somewhere in the ballpark of 22 to 25 first cousins, some of whom I've never met. Now, here's the funny thing about families sometimes, right? Even distant relationships, when you start to get to know each other, you start to recognize similarities between each other as family members. It happened to me with my cousins, uh, two of my, my cousins that I'm very close with. Um, we were driving around in a car one time. In fact, this was right before I got married and they were in my wedding. And so we were all kind of hanging out and doing some stuff. And one of my cousins looked down and he went, Hey, we have the same hands. <laughs> he goes, put your hand up here. Look, our hands are the same. And just physically, there was this resemblance that we had to one another as relatives. Now, on the other hand, metaphorically, we are very different as well. There were some definite quirks, either from my perspective towards them as cousins, I thought they had some quirks, and they most definitely looking my direction went, boy, that guy's got some quirks as well. And so to think of John the Baptist as Jesus's cousin is an interesting thing. There were some very definite similarities in their purpose in life. And the thing that they had been called to in this existence here on earth. Well, John the Baptist, as he was known, had developed quite a ministry in fulfilling his godly calling, which was to prepare the way for Jesus. And he was... Uh, faithful to do that work. And so I want to take a look just to begin our time today in John chapter 3. This is the Apostle John writing about John the Baptist and the ministry that he partook of, the God-given ministry that he had in preparing the way for Jesus 
and his earthly ministry, ultimately leading to the cross and the resurrection. In John chapter 3, verse 22, here's what it says. Jesus has just proclaimed to Nicodemus how to be born again, and he has made that statement in John 3, 16, that this is how God loved the world, that he gave his only begotten son, that anybody who would believe upon Jesus would never perish, but would have eternal life. That Jesus wasn't coming to judge the world, but by but through him, the world could be saved. Meaning anybody in the world who believes upon Jesus can be forgiven of their sins because Jesus went to the cross to pay for the sins of anybody who would believe upon him. That's the purpose of the crucifixion, as we just celebrated in, in East, on Easter. But right after that, this is what takes place. It says, after this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet, yet been put into prison. That's a whole other story, very interesting and very important. But for our purposes today, Jesus is baptizing there, right? And John is baptizing. Verse 25. Now, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples. See, he had had this ministry building, and he had guys who were his disciples, his followers, who were listening to his teaching and what he was saying about the coming Messiah, and they were saying, this is our guy. We're going to sit with this guy and hang with this guy and participate in this ministry. He had a following. He would have what we would call a successful ministry. People were coming out to see him in droves. It was this thing where even people who didn't believe in what John was preaching or saying were coming out because there was this amazing stuff happening. People were being baptized. People were attaching themselves to John. And so here's what it says in verse 25. Again, now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan." to whom you bore witness, meaning Jesus. Look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. And John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. And look at what John the Baptist says in John 3, verse 30. And this is going to be our rudder for the day. In John 3, verse 30, he says, He must increase, but I must decrease. Speaking of Jesus, the one, again, who in that picture of marriage is the bridegroom. And we, those who are saved by his death and resurrection, are called the bride, the part of, we, we who are the church are considered the bride of Christ. And so John says, he says, he must increase, I must decrease. And then he goes on, and some scholars uh, question whether this is a quote of John that finishes this out, or a statement of John the Apostle as he's, as he's writing, I tend to lead toward, towards the direction that says, this is a continued quote from John the Baptist. In verse 31, it says, He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. 
Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, and whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains upon him. John the Baptist, again, from an earthly perspective, we would say he has this successful ministry. He's been faithful. There's nothing been found lacking in his character. People are coming out in droves. He's doing the work of ministry. He's doing what God told him to do to prepare the way of Jesus. He's baptizing people for the repentance of their sins, right? All of these things are taking... He even got to baptize Jesus in that scene where, where God's uh, anointing of Jesus, but the Spirit coming upon him like a dove, right? This inauguration of Jesus' earthly ministry taking place. That was John the Baptist. That was his role in Jesus' ministry. He's successful, and yet what he's doing is completely laying that down. He's saying, the thing that I've been called to do is now fulfilled. I've done what God asked me to do, and now there's no competition of ministries here. There's no comparison of, I'm going to keep doing my ministry here as a little uh, you know, side project while Jesus does his. No, no, no. He says, he must increase, and I, my role, my ministry, everything I am, just needs to decrease. It needs to take a back seat, however you want to think about that, and say that. John says, I rejoice because my ministry is fulfilled. Jesus and what he was sent to do is now the main event. That's what has to increase. I have to decrease. Now, it's interesting. I think this is perhaps why Jesus, in Luke's accounting of the gospel, perhaps said... Um, Perhaps this is why he said this about John the Baptist. Some of John's followers had come and asked Jesus a question, you know, saying, are you the one, right? And Jesus gives them an answer and sends them back to John. But he, when John's messengers left here in Luke chapter 7, mark this, it's an interesting thing. John, uh, Luke 7, verse 24, says, when John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. Interesting thing here, Jesus is saying, this guy, and, and he's going to continue on, and I'll just, spoiler alert, he's going to commend John the Baptist for his role in his ministry and fulfilling that ministry. Jesus is making the comparison and going, listen, the people who are all, you know, sort of soft and gentle and dressed in fine clothes, those aren't the ones that you should be looking at as associated with God's ministry and God's purpose and plan. Rather, this one who's sort of out there boldly proclaiming things that are creating a stir, you know, and, and not dressed in soft clothing. He's just sort of a normal, rough and tough dude, which to the point, I'll say this just as an aside, to stop and consider and think about whether it was John the Baptist Jesus himself, the Apostle Paul, all of these men who were called in this ministry of proclaiming Jesus, right? When, when their ministry took hold, one of two things typically happened. It was either a riot or a revival. These men proclaimed so boldly the truth of God about Jesus. John the Baptist in preparing the way, Jesus 
declaring now is the time for God's kingdom, establishing himself as the Messiah, fulfilling everything that says he is the perfect lamb to be slain for the sins of the world. Or after the fact, the apostle Paul and the other early church fathers who, who were making these bold stands, and they're the ones who end up in Fox's Book of Martyrs being killed because of this passion that they had for God's word and for who Jesus was and proclaiming that it was either a riot where they were speaking the truth without hesitation and people were revolting against them, or it was a revival. People were receiving the conviction of the Holy Spirit by the proclaiming of God's word, and revival would break out. There was no middle ground in the proclamation of Jesus as Lord. And we see that echoed again in Revelation where God says, listen, I would that you'd either be hot or cold. If you're lukewarm, I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. And this here, Jesus, in talking to these crowds, this is kind of what he's saying. He's saying this John the Baptist, man, he wasn't some soft guy trying to make everybody feel good or, or feel comfortable about the message that he had. He says, behold, in verse 25, behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. Verse 26, Luke 7, 26 says, what then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, behold, I send my messenger before your face. He will prepare your way before you. And I tell you, Jesus says, among those born of women, none is greater than John. I think this humility that John exhibited by saying, I must decrease, Jesus must increase. I'm rejoicing that my role in all of this is fulfilled. And Jesus is on the road to ultimately providing salvation for anyone who would believe upon him. John knew his role and he was faithful to it. And there's this humility that Jesus then commends and says, it's not about John. He fulfilled his role, but because he's done that, among people born among women, there is none greater than John the Baptist. That's a powerful statement. And yet Jesus says something in the very next verse, as he often does, that might send our minds just reeling. Look at what he says. He says, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Now that is a powerful powerful statement by Jesus that in everything that John accomplished in being faithful to the ministry God called him to everything that he did and saw and was to was actually got to herald and proclaim Jesus Jesus says he's the greatest among all who've ever lived on the earth but those who are least in the kingdom of God are even greater now that's an interesting idea and we'll incorporate that in just a moment. But let's turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, like I mentioned at the very beginning, and find ourselves there. All of that background, talking about John the Baptist and his ministry, and specifically that rudder for us, he must decrease, we must decrease, Jesus must increase, is what Paul is dealing with in Corinth here. As we've been studying verse by verse on Wednesday night, we only got through a few verses. But the whole context here for us is that there are these divisions in the church. There are these schisms because people are focusing on people in the church. Who am I going to follow? Who is my leader going to be? Who's the voice that I'm going to respond to? And so let's take a look at verse 5, 1 Corinthians 3, verse 5, and see how Paul answers this. He says, What then is Apollos? 
What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Here's what the Apostle Paul, in the power and faithfulness of his ministry, says. John the Baptist would say, I must decrease, he must increase. Paul the Apostle would say, me, Apollos, Cephas, anybody else in the church, we are nothing. He would just say, we're, we're, we're nothing. He says, what is Apollos? He doesn't even say who is Apollos or who is Paul. He says, what? Because in reality, he goes, we're just dust. We're just God's field. We're God's building, if you will. And although God be a master builder or a master farmer, whatever the case might be, he's having to use imperfect material here because of sin and, and, and the trappings of this world. He goes, but we're, we're nothing. We're just servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. Paul's purpose here is to say that there should never be these types of divisions in the church. Who's in charge? Who gets to do what ministry? Who gets to hold the microphone the longest and, and preach and teach the most? Whose gift is more important than someone else's gift? These are the issues that were coming up at Corinth. And I'll just be real honest. These are the issues that we still see in the church today. We see people coming and going from different churches and making the rounds. And, and when you really dial it back and sort of get to the heart of the matter, this is what's going on. People are going, well, people are saying, well, what about my ministry? What about my thing? What about the, the, the type of music or worship that I like? What about the program that I want to do? And how come he gets to hold the mic so much? And how come he's the one always teaching the Bible study or whatever the case might be? And so what we see is people hopping around to different churches and just repeating the same thing in a different location. And what Paul is saying to these people who are creating these schisms, these factions within the church as a whole, not just the local church at Corinth, but the church as a whole, he's saying, hey, listen, we're nothing. We're, all of us who are standing up in front of you and doing this work of ministry, we're just servants. God has just called us and assigned to us a specific group of people to just care for and to take care of. And so the desire, like we talked about on Wednesday, for us in the church should be to grow beyond the immaturity, the infant state of just the, the milk of the simple things of the word that, that we are saved by, which are true. We never grow beyond them, but we do want to mature and get deeper into the things of God. There should be a seeking out of maturity in the body of Christ, not allowing ourselves to be sidetracked by these divisions and schisms and arguments, but rather there should be agreement in the church, a recognition of whom God has blessed, filled with his spirit and given gifts to, and just go, yeah, that guy, God's just gifted him to teach, so he's going to teach, and this other person, God's just blessed them with the spirit of generosity. They're just going to give. 
And these others are good at administrating how things work. We're going to allow them to do that ministry as they're gifted by God. All of those things. You know, it's totally appropriate and really, really cool to be talking about this right after Easter. Because, you know, after Jesus rose from the grave, he walked on earth for about 40 days before he ascended to be with the Father. And in Paul's letter to the Ephesian church, uh, he tells us something really, really cool and very, very important for us in terms of this uh, discussion about what happened when Jesus ascended. Take a look at Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 8. Again, Paul, speaking to a different church, the church of Ephesus rather than Corinth, is still discussing this issue of unity. As I've said before, it's an issue that was within all of the early church. It's not just a modern day problem. It was happening at the very outset of the church. And Paul had to address it in multiple locations. And so take a look at um, Ephesians chapter 4. And we'll begin in verse 7. Ah, oh, we'll begin in verse 4 because this is awesome. Nope, we'll begin in verse 1 because the whole passage is worth our attention and our time. Forgive me. It says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Speaking to the church, Paul then goes on in verse 4 and says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Nothing we've earned, nothing we deserve. God's grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And what it means is mankind. Jesus, when he ascended, he gave gifts to mankind. Now those gifts are described in places like Romans chapter 12, represented by the grace of God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, gifts of the Holy Spirit, how they're administered and to be used for the common good. Those are all examples of these gifts that Jesus left to his followers, to his people. Take a look at uh, verse 11. Verse 11 says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Watch this, verse 14, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. You're just infants still. You're little kids. I can't speak to you as spiritual people, as spirit-filled people right now, because you're still acting like little infants and kids. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4 that these gifts that Jesus gave as they're used by the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and the shepherd teachers, 
those who are there in those different offices and in the spirit of those offices to oversee the church and function within the church. The purpose is to build us up in unity, but so that we can mature and not be children tossed to and fro by the waves of every, or by the wind of every other doctrine that's taught, this human cunningness and this deceitful schemes to draw people toward a human, a perspective. If you give me all your money, I'll pray for you. If you give me all your money as a sign of your faith, you're going to receive your best life now. This is what Paul is warning against. Those are not new inventions of men. Those were happening in the church at the very beginning, even as Paul is warning against here. In verse 15, he continues in, in Ephesians 4, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, then each part is working properly, makes the, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Paul says very clearly here that the purpose of the different roles that we have in the church that spirit of apostleship to go out and pioneer new ministries, the work of the prophets, people who just speak the word of the Lord in a given moment for a specific purpose. Everyone called to be an evangelist in some way. Those who are called to be uh, uh, shepherd teachers, pastors, to watch over the flock. They're all there for the purpose of being unified in this mission and this gift that's been given us in Jesus, grace from God, but so that we might mature and grow up and be able to, to fulfill what God has called us to be as his children, that we would be showing love, the love of God toward one another so that the world knows that we're Jesus's disciples. You know, when, when uh, Paul was talking to the Corinthian church and he was accusing them of being infants, right? Stuck drinking milk, unable to handle grown-up stuff, you know, it, it's, it's the issue of why were they arguing about who held what office and, and who was the one that we were following? What voice were we following? Rather, he was calling them to say, listen, we're all just servants. We're all called to fulfill the ministry God has given us. And, and the, the, the calling that he's placed upon our lives to build one another up. All of these functions or roles that Jesus gave people as gifts in, in making up the body of Christ it's like what Paul says back in 1 Corinthians 3. He says, he says uh, uh, I planted. Paul says, I planted the seed of the word of God into people's hearts, into the soil of their hearts. And then Apollos came along after me and he watered it. He had a different role than I did. I planted and, and Apollos watered. We were both serving the same purpose. We were both servants called at different times, perhaps even to minister to the same group of people. Yet it was God that brings the increase. And so when we think about John the Baptist and his statement regarding Jesus, it makes a lot of sense. We must decrease. We do our job. We fulfill our ministry. We plant seeds when we're called to plant seeds. We water when we're called to water. Sometimes we have to do the backbreaking work of, of digging up hard ground saying hard things at times. There's others where we have to just rest and let the Lord do his work because we know salvation is of the Lord. 
We don't do anything to secure anyone's salvation. We're just the servants who are working to serve that purpose. It's God who brings the increase. So again, we must decrease. Jesus must increase. That's where salvation comes from. We are nothing. He is everything. And yet, I want to finish with this statement. And Paul, back in 1 Corinthians 3, makes a statement that is perhaps hard for us to wrap our minds around because it's a big one. When we say we must increase, Jesus, we must decrease, pardon me, Jesus must increase. And we echo Paul in saying we're just servants, we're nothing. We're just servants that God is using. There's another statement that, that he makes that is important for us to understand. In verse nine, well, let's look at verse eight. It says, he who plants and he who waters are one and each will receive his wages according to his labor. We're one, no matter what role you play in the church, we're one. But then in verse nine, he says this, for we are God's fellow workers. We know salvation is of the Lord completely. It begins with him, it ends with him. He calls people, he seeks and saves the lost. Nobody is actually seeking for God on their own apart from the calling and the conviction of the Holy Spirit. That work is of the Lord completely. But here's the interesting thing. Now, do, do we believe that God can save to the uttermost, that if he wanted to just snap his fingers and save people? Yes, but that's not how he's designed it. This is the thing that's so hard to wrap our minds around. God saves, it's all of him. And yet, he calls us, who are the servants of Jesus, to be his co-laborers, his co-workers in salvation. We don't provide salvation, none of it. It's all the Lord. But in getting to that point, he calls us to plant seeds. He calls us to water. He calls us to be unified and love one another as a witness. And then as a result of those things all working together, God saves people. In the calling of God, the gifting of Jesus the empowering of the Holy Spirit to accomplish what we've been called to do, God is calling us to partner with him in his work of salvation while simultaneously being worked on. Again, the purpose of the letter to 1 Corinthians was to correct inappropriate behavior, was to correct some things that were being taught that were wrong or things that were acted upon that were wrong. And so Paul has to rebuke the Corinthian church. And in the same way, we constantly, in searching out the scriptures and listening to the conviction of the Holy Spirit, have to be rebuked for our own activities and our own actions, the things that we get wrong because of our flesh. And yet, God calls us to be his fellow workers. In verse 9 again, it says, For we are God's fellow workers. But watch, you are God's field and God's building. At the same time that he calls us to be fellow workers, partners in this ministry, he's still working on us. We're still the field that has been planted and watered. We're still the building of the church that has had a foundation of Jesus Christ laid and are building then this, this architecture upon it for the purpose of proclaiming the goodness of God and the salvation found in Jesus alone. You will never grow more in your faith. You will never mature more in the discipline of 
following after Jesus and becoming like Jesus than when you are, are engaged in serving Jesus, in doing the work that he has called you to do, in fulfilling the great commission, in using the gifts that God has given you to be a blessing in the church and to those that we are witnessing to outside of the church. And here's the thought I want to leave you with. You will never receive more of Jesus than when you are making the most of Jesus. Whether it's in your own life personally, you're feeling dry, you're feeling um, down, you're feeling disconnected from the Lord. When you engage in, in making the most of Jesus, worshiping him with your life, singing praises out to him, imploring him in prayer, studying his scripture, he will come and he will meet you in those places. I'm not telling you that the moment you flip open your Bible to a random page and just read whatever scripture is in front of you, that that's going to be your answer to your problems in life. I'm not saying that. But when you put in the work of pursuing Jesus and of seeking him out, we are promised that he will meet us in those things. Now, we may not always hear the answers we want to hear. We may hear silence as an answer to some of the things that we're trying to figure out in our life. But nevertheless, God will meet us. Jesus will meet you if you will seek him out in those things. If you will pursue him, he will, he will absolutely meet you in those things. Now again, this happens after salvation. When you're in Christ and you feel distant from him, go back to the things that you love about him, the fact that he saved you. The fact that you receive peace from his presence. Go back into those things and he will meet you in those things. You will never receive more of Jesus than when you are making the most of Jesus. Make him the highest priority in your life and you will receive from him. The same is true in our ministry. In talking to people who have not believed upon Jesus, and maybe there's someone right now listening and watching who, who has not placed their faith upon Jesus. If you make the most of Jesus right now, if you say, Jesus, I believe what I've heard about you, I believe what I've read about you, that you are the Son of God who died on the cross to pay for my sins, I repent. I confess I'm a sinner. I turn away from those sins and I make the most of you. I place you at the top of every list in my life, of every authority in my life. Jesus, you're at the top. I make the most of you. I can promise you that he will meet you. And it's as simple as calling out to him and saying, I believe. Jesus, I believe that you died on the cross, paid for my sins. I believe that you rose from the grave and that you're alive right now, preparing a place for me to be with you for eternity. And you have a good plan for my life. So if that's you, I would invite you to pray that right now. Confess that to the Lord now. Proclaim Jesus as your Savior. Turn over your life to him. Make the most of him. And I promise you, you will find him. He will find you, rather. And he will meet with you. And he will save you. If that's you, and, and you're someone who's just like, I need to know more about this salvation thing. And, and, and even if I get that part, I need to know what it means to walk with Jesus. I'd love for you to send us an email. 
shoot Matt an email or myself. It'll be linked in the description below. You can go to the church website, thewayeugene.org, and find us there and find other teaching and, and encouragement. But I pray that there would be someone listening to this today that will hear this and believe upon Jesus for salvation. For the rest of us who are a part of God's body, man, this is what we're called to do. Make the most of Jesus. We must decrease and he must increase. Amen.